At a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Monday, August 7th, 2023 edition. I'm Justin Klein, and I'm excited for this hour with you today as we power through the month of August. I know it's hot out there for a lot of people, and the second half of the year is often pretty hot for markets. And when I say hot, meaning uh, you know, there's a lot of investors are sweating, and that often is because there's more volatility in the back half of the year. That's historically seasonality. That's where liquidity is uh, a bit choppier, uh, and that's just uh, that manifests in markets. And so you have to be prepared for that. Uh, it doesn't mean that you sell everything. So many people uh, get into this fallacy of becoming black or white. That happens within politics too often, uh, but it happens in markets as well. Should I sell it? Should I buy it? Should I short it? Right, and I rarely, rarely hear people say, "Should I rebalance?" Right. So, you know, this this hour, just like it is every weekday, is about helping you shake off some of those, a lot of that black and white thinking, and start to think about the world in shades of gray. Risk versus rewards, and. The investing world is, it's multifaceted. I mean, there's a lot of variables that go into your decision. And too often, everyone tries to distill it down to one or two things. And sometimes it can fit. Oftentimes, good trades fit in a very short, concise explanation. But it's typically not, oh, it did well last month or it did well in the last year. That's not the type of distillation that makes sense. There's some sort of reason for the market to re-rate that asset higher, the improvement in the business based on economic or geopolitical reasons, etc. That's often what moves assets in the near term. And so when you're thinking about making the decisions to fill up your portfolio with various assets, you're going to have to weigh multiple factors, but you're going to have to try to weed out the noise and focus on what will drive prices both near term, medium term, and long term. And hint, it's rarely what happened last quarter or last year. And so our job here is to help guide you through the process by answering your finance and investment questions 
and put you in the mindset to make decisions that are based on the reality on the ground, not hopes and dreams, not driven by political ideology, one way or the other, not driven by just some narrative or chasing performance. And so when you ask your questions, we're able to, you know, fit this show to your liking, direct it to your liking. Then today you control the narrative on this show. So I'm ready to tackle your questions, but you have to call it 888 chart Now, my main focus point looks in the story behind this headline. Bad timing cost investors one-fifth of their return, uh, the return of their fund, sorry, Bad timing cost investors one-fifth of their funds return. There we go. So this is a study by Morningstar. I thought it was great. And it doesn't just break down the actual amount of returns investors get in aggregate. It shows per fund type where most people, based on timing low or poor timing, they lag the actual return of the fund. So what, it, what it's saying is, Hey, if you go look at a fund performance, it might might have done 10% last year, but based on timing of money going in and out, out of that fund, the actual investors, they didn't make that much. They might have made 9% or 8.2 or 8.7, right? Depends on the fund and, and the fund type. So we're going to drill down on this topic and explain, especially the type of funds that most that get most people in trouble. Also, I want to touch on the fiscal side of the U.S. government and where that's headed and why it is important, probably more medium term than short term, but something that has been talked about for a long time. And the big question is, where is that headed? Also, inflation data is coming up. So we're definitely going to keep an eye on that. So I want to break down what to expect there. And then lastly, lastly, what technology companies are deploying AI? I thought that would be uh, interesting to look at, not just the big tech companies, uh, but actually deploying AI. So we're going to look at that. Now, those are the topics that are on my mind, but ultimately we're going to get to your calls, your voice bank calls on SNC Technologies as well as Perry Network, and we have an iTunes review question ready to go as well. Now, my perspective segment looks at the select historical data from the market index we know as known as the Dow Jones Industrial Average, data going back 100 plus years. So I have this all planned for this hour with you. And of course, your live calls as well at 888 chart. Now, let's take a quick look at the market today. We had the pretty big sell-off on Friday, and you had a little bit of bounce back today. Large caps up about 86 basis points. The small caps up a little bit less than half a percent. And you certainly had the value side of the market outperforming today. You continue to see kind of that grind higher performance on the value side uh, as of late. And today was another one of those days. You had energy prices up and you had some, you know, the, some of the broader uh, tech companies down. And so that weighed on uh, the, the market as a whole. So nice little bounce back today off of decent support on the S&P. And it doesn't shock me. I expect we're in this 
kind of grinding period. You're going to have nice up days like today and larger sell-offs like you did uh, last week a couple times. So that's what to expect really, I think, between now and maybe end of October. It could just be a grind, right? It could just be consolidation. It could be similar to what we got. Let's see. When was that? Just pulling up a daily chart here. We grinded sideways between the beginning of April and the end of May, right? So two months were just grinded at resistance. And could we enter a period like that? I think that's certainly possible. Could we get a more protracted pullback, maybe down to 4,200 on the S&P? We're at 45 and change now. That's certainly possible, right? 7, 8% pullback. Wouldn't shock me. That's not a... Uh, that's not an unusual type of uh, volatility you expect in equity markets. Most years, you get a 10% pullback in markets, most years. So could this be the start of that? I think that's certainly possible as well. It's hard to know because of the liquidity dynamics that are so important. And the Treasury is gonna, going to try to manage that. And we'll see how uh, that plays out through the balance of the quarter. But... That's where we're at. So we're going to a quick break. But please remember that you can call anytime and leave your question on the Invest Talk Voice Bank. Or if you're listening via the live stream on AM 1220 in the Silicon Valley area, you can call right now at 888-99-CHART. When listener questions are played on the Invest Talk podcast, how do you guys determine a value stock? The caller voices are amplified many thousands of times. Just wanted to get your opinion on JP Morgan and BAC. How do you see this uh, looking forward? I'm 25 years old and have a question about retirement funds. And the unbiased answers from Justin Klein. That's why it's trading so cheap because there's a lot of regulatory risk. And Steve Peasley. I, I kind of like it here. If I was going to buy Tyson food, this is where I'd buy it. Benefit the entire Invest Talk community. Thank you for what you guys do. That's why 24 7, rain or shine, no matter how simple or how complex, your questions make a difference. Symbol BKE, what's your outlook? And Invest Talk is made better by the power of you. So don't forget to call 888 99CHART. Justin Klein is here and ready to take your calls live. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Oh, uh, yes, I'm calling from the Northeast. I was wondering what you guys think of BJ's Wholesale Club, whether it will uh, possibly turn into the next Costco. And I hope to hear the answer on your podcast. Thank you. All right, looking at BJ's Wholesale. Symbol is BJ. And... You know, is it going to be the next Costco? Uh, hey, that's the, it's got a long way to go, right? Costco is a two hundred and forty-seven billion dollar market cap, doing about two hundred and twenty-five-ish billion dollars annually. Okay, two hundred twenty-five billion dollars annually. BJ has a nine billion dollar market cap. And it's doing roughly twenty billion annually in sales. That's sales, excuse me, sales. So big difference there. Okay, about ten times uh, the size. Costco's about ten times the size. Now, does BJ have more room to grow? 
It's because it's smaller? Sure, absolutely. Both are good businesses. But can it outcompete with with Costco, you know, long term? Maybe. If you're looking for something that has the ability to grow more consistently, BJ's is definitely it because of just that smaller footprint. Not a lot of debt, so it certainly has the uh, cash flow and the ability and the balance sheet to, to grow. <clears throat> so that's a positive. It's not going to be limited by servicing debt, for example. But obviously Costco is probably a better business, more scaled because of its size. But once again, both are good businesses. Costco is your blue chip bread and butter. BJ's is probably something that has more upside long-term. So I don't dislike your thinking here by owning BJ's over a Costco. And you know it is trading at a discount to Costco, but it probably should be because Costco is just uh, so stable. All right. So I'm going to get BJ's over long-term. I think a thumbs up. All right, now, when people take the time to leave an Invest Talk podcast review on iTunes, we'd like to thank them for the courtesy by getting to the question quickly. Randall1951 says, I especially enjoy it when Luke and Justin deliver slightly different opinions, give, gives me two valuable perspectives. I'm glad you're, you're liking that. Uh, we're going to have more of that coming up. We have uh, something in the works, so be on the lookout for that. But his question is, is Barrett Gold worth keeping dividend payout ratio 666%? As this morning, I don't see that as sustainable. Well, you are looking at the wrong figure because you want to be looking more at cash flow and its balance sheet. Payout ratio is one measure to understand dividend sustainability. But long term, you know, Barrick is one of the best run gold miners out there. And they have a, once again, they have a strong balance sheet, strong cash flow, cash from operations, $3.2 billion on about a $29 billion market cap, and they've been paying down their debt, so that's good. It's one of the better, like I said, it's one of the better gold miners out there. I don't see an issue with paying its dividend in the near term because of that strong balance sheet, because of that cash flow. And so I don't think it's going to, I don't think a dividend's going anywhere. may not grow in the near term uh, until gold prices break out again, which they certainly will could, especially considering our debt situation as a country and where the dollar is likely headed, probably a bit lower. All right. Now, as we head into a break, let me tell you about a new video feature we are producing. It's called the Invest Talk Sector Spotlight. It is free on YouTube. It's the second episode and it's available now. And it talks about the energy sector. Luke and I bounced that back and forth. So head over to your YouTube, YouTube channel and check out the Invest Talk Sector Spotlight. And now, my phone lines are open, waiting for your questions at 888-99-CHART. One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors. And I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888 99 Chart. 
Now, our main focus point today looks into the story behind this headline, and it's about bad timing and how it costs investors one-fifth of their fund's returns. And this is Morningstar's annual Mind the Gap study. And what it does, it looks at the return of the average dollar invested in funds and exchange-traded funds, so ETFs and mutual funds, and compares it to the average fund's total return. And when you look at the difference, that is the gap. Okay, and it's the gap that is attributed to bad timing, poor timing. Well, now what they found is the average dollar invested in funds, remember these are mutual funds and ETFs, earned about 6% annually over the 10 years ending last year. So this is the end of last year. While the average fund itself returned 7.7%. So what they're waiting, they're, they're waiting, they're measuring it based on how the fund performed over time and weighted it by how, much, how big or how many assets each fund had at a given time. And so if it's going up when there's more money in it, then obviously that's going to have a bigger weighting. If it goes down when there's less money, that's going to have a lower weighting just because it's less money, right? So what they looked at was, well, first off, this is pretty consistent. The 2021 gap was also 1.7. The 2020 gap was also 1.7. The 2019 gap was 1.5. And the 2018 gap was 1.6. So somewhere in the 1.5% to 2% range annually is the drag from bad timing. Now, this is different depending on what part of the market you're talking about. For example, broad U.S. equities was the second lowest. The lowest slice of the market were the allocation funds, funds where it's a mix of assets, equities and bonds, maybe some commodities. There's some sort of allocation there and and like a target data fund. And that's why I always say target data funds aren't ideal, but they're certainly more, they're an improvement because they kind of diversify everything out where the return volatility is not very volatile. And so it doesn't, it forces people into bad trades less because of that more smooth return profile. Now, the worst sector or worst category, shall we say, were the sector equity funds. So the funds that track the energy sector or the tech sector or consumer discretionary or commodities, you know, basic materials, shall I say, right? The 11 sectors of the S&P. And that gap was 4.38%. That was more than double the next category. And that was non-traditional equity. So maybe long short funds would be one of those non-traditional equity type of uh, type of funds. And that was 2.06. So the sector equity was 4.38%. So it shows you that people make the worst, investors make the worst decisions when it comes to trying to pick 
that particular sector because what they're doing more often than not is they're chasing a performance and be a narrative. Meaning right now, AI is popular, right? So everyone's buying AI funds. There's some AI-focused funds out there. And they typically will do that at the worst time. They'll own it. It might go up for a little bit. And then because it's so overvalued, it's so overcrowded, when that turns and it corrects, all of a sudden, they sell at a loss. And that gap is over 4% annually. That is absolutely massive. Massive. Now, when you break it down by kind of style factors and other types of, I guess, the 10 largest uh, Morningstar categories here by net assets, the three best were actually moderate allocation as well as, let's see, large blend. That was pretty good. Only moderate allocation was 0.29%. That was the drag. And that's because, once again, the diversification and the lack of volatility doesn't mean people are getting too, they're not chasing returns, they're also not freaking out when there's volatility. Diversified emerging markets were the worst. That was a negative 1.69% drag. Remember, these are top 10 categories. So this is a kind of excluding those sector uh, funds. So investors are more likely to mistime the investment when there's high volatility versus less volatility. So the takeaway here really is if you're going to buy funds, understand your risk tolerance level truly. Don't chase the sectors. And you probably want some sort of allocation fund that has a mix of both bonds and stocks, maybe some other assets, etc. And then you won't be shook out of it on the upside or the downside. All right. Now, the next invest stock, we'll look at the story behind this question. Is the stock market now fairly valued? That story tomorrow. But for now, I'm Justin Klein, ready to take your questions live at 888 chart Let's say you've been thinking about learning a new language. Okay, why? I mean, how would it come in handy? And where would you want to use it? Could it be that you have an upcoming international trip? Or maybe you want to connect with family members or friends from a different culture. I think you should know about Rosetta Stone. With millions of users, it's been the world's most trusted language learning program for 30 years. Rosetta Stone is available on your desktop or as an app with audio companion and the ability to download lessons offline. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It has a built-in patented speech recognition engine called True Accent. So as you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you pronounce words. With Rosetta Stone, you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. It's an intuitive process designed for long-term retention. You really learn to speak, listen, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone is an amazing value. So your special skill set is within easy reach. You know you want to do this. So don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, InvestTalk listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today.
That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off now at rosettastone.com today. Each day, Invest Talk listeners submit their finance and investment questions via phone or email. Would you like your question to be put near the top of the list? Just take a minute or two to leave a review and rating for Invest Talk at iTunes. And be sure to include a brief question with your iTunes review comments. Hello, Steve and Justin. My name is David from Portland. Love the show. Was wondering what your take is on Disney. Trading near its 52 week low does seem like it's a time to just kind of sit and wait on the sidelines for a while. Maybe it'll drop a little lower, although I don't think it's going to drop into the 60s, like Justin said the other day. And one comment I'd love to hear some clarification on is a comment that Steve made about Disney being political or being more political and alienating half of its customers. I don't see Disney being political. I see them being apolitical and trying to promote equality. And so I would love Justin to clarify his comment about Disney being more political. It sounded like he said Disney should be to shut up and play ball. And that seems pretty narrow-minded and only based in opinions. If Steve could, or if Justin could clarify that comment of Disney's being too political or more political and alienating his customers, if you could please clarify that comment, I would really appreciate it. Thank you. Sure, happy to. Uh, I think the the nature of our politics today is a lot of a lot of businesses can get caught up in in politics, uh, a lot of times unintentionally, and it can be hard to to navigate the media echo chambers either on the left or the right and i what i what i meant by disney getting political is simply the fact that it's been caught up in politics and obviously when you are trying to navigate that you're not going to make everybody happy and they certainly haven't and obviously what's happening with disney world and uh governor desantis and and the battle there kind of puts them in the crosshairs of the right, whether that's justified or not is I think something that for, for everyone else to judge, but clearly it has, right? It has been caught up in that. And once again, you can, you can uh, have your opinion on whether they've handled that well or not. Uh, but the bottom line, it has. And so that's hurt. That's clearly hurt their business to a degree. Now, I don't think that's the main issue here. I wouldn't say Disney's main problem is political. Uh, I think it has more to do with two things. I think they put a lot behind Disney Plus, and it's doing okay, but it's they've turned into a model that if you look at Netflix, right, their business is very capital intensive. You have to produce new content all the time to keep subscribers, etc. Uh, now, now Disney has a large library of obviously great content that's uh, stood the test of time. So 
they have to do it less than Netflix. Um, but clearly, it hasn't really worked out for them if you're just looking at the raw numbers uh, of their business. And then on top of that, I think uh, the, the second one, which maybe is even more powerful, is franchises like ESPN had been a big driver of subscription growth, uh, advertising revenue, etc. And frankly, ESPN's struggling as well in the world as of more cord cutting. And so it's, it's a new media landscape that I think Disney is struggling to navigate along with the politics. So it's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy for Disney or you want to put a whole lot of blame. It's, it's, it's a difficult environment to, in multiple ways to, for them to pivot and adjust and, and, and maintain strong cash flows and profitability. And so because of that, I find it hard to get excited about, about Disney. And so when you say it can't go in the 60s, I, I don't see why not. <laughs> look, at the, look at the underlying fundamentals, right? They're only supposed to make 372 this year. And analysts are downgrading those expectations for this year. So should it trade it 20 times? Earnings, I, I see no reason why why it can't. And the technicals certainly aren't doing it any favors. So I hope that clarified my position there. It's not something that oftentimes is attributable to one person. You know, st- companies can struggle because of variables outside of their control. And so I think that's a lot of what Disney is dealing with right now. Now, my perspective today looks at the story, looks at the select historical data from the market index we know as the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Now, m- many professionals, including myself, will say the Dow isn't a good representation of the broader market. The S&P obviously is because it's 500 names versus 30 names. It's market cap weighted versus price weighted. But the Dow is widely followed and it's been around longer than the S&P. So we're gonna look at data from World War II era and look at the trends. Now the Dow Jones Industrial Average, or simply the Dow, is a stock market index of 30 prominent companies listed here on our exchanges. And it's one of the oldest and most commonly followed equity indexes. It's price weighted. Remember that. So if a company splits, that will change its weighting within the index. That's why I don't really love it because companies can split for various numbers of reasons. It doesn't change the value of the company. It doesn't change anything. It just changes the numbers on the screen. And it does not use a weighted arithmetic mean either, which is another way to calculate it. Now, it was first calculated in 1896. That's how old it is. And it's created by Charles Dow. He was the co-founder of both the Wall Street Journal and the Dow Jones and Company, both obviously still around today. And it was named after him and his business associate statistician, Edward Jones. That's where you get the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Now, the current price of the Dow 
as of last Friday, 35065 So far in 2023, the average closing price has been 33663 And it's been up about 5.79%. Obviously lagging those larger indices. Now, the average closing price in 2017 was 21750 98, it was 8630 In 58, it was only 491 In 1938, it was 132 Okay, And proving there's data from more than 100 years back, in 1920, the average closing price was 90 90 that's it. And that was down 33% from 2019. So obviously 2020 was a rough year. Sorry, 2020, 1920. Pretty similar to 2020, right? That was a rough year as well. Now, with the reference to the data from the period of U.S. involvement in World War II, from 1942 to 1945, the average closing price increased four years straight. So war was good. The Dow was up 26.6% in 1945 alone. So as we know, when there's reasons for the government to spend money and for businesses to get some of that money, typically stocks do well. So it's always interesting to see those a lot lower numbers on the Dow going back into the 30s and understand how far it's come and the power of compounding as well. Now let's pivot back to the Invest Talk Voice Bank at 888 chart Hey, Stephen Justin Art from Tucson. I'm calling about SS&C Technologies Holdings. That's ticker SSNC. I have a small position. It's had a recent pullback and wondering if I should add to it. Gene, what you think about the company and its future prospects and if this is a good time to uh, invest more. Thank you. I'll listen on the podcast. Thanks for all you guys do. Appreciate it. All right, looking at SSNC Technologies, and we actually own this for some of our managed accounts, and we really like their business. Uh, we actually affect uh, our customer theirs because we use one of their products called Black Diamond for our clients to log in, see their account, etc. Very easy to use, very nice, and we like it. We like it a lot, uh, and we like the the business overall as well. Very strong free cash flow, about a billion dollars on a market cap of only about 14 billion. Modest debt profile, which is solid. They are continuing to pay down debt and starting to pay debt back share, buy back shares, excuse me. So we really like that. And if you look at its long-term multiples that it typically trades at, price to book is only about 2.3. And historically, it trades closer to 3. So that would say this is about 25% undervalued. And I think that's that's correct. And remember, their business is, is somewhat tied to equity prices. So uh, they are they, they make software across the industry. So not just Black Diamond. That's, uh, that's one of many pieces of, of software uh, that they produce for banks and hedge funds and uh, asset managers, et cetera. So uh, it's certainly a well-diversified business in that sense. They've recently uh, started to get into healthcare as well. So we like that. 
but it's a software producer with good margins, not a huge grower, but very profitable and a consistent grower over time. 2016, it only made $1.64. This year, it's supposed to make $4.39. So uh, on this pullback, I do think it is a good buy. All right. Thanks for the call. Now, the big news last week was the debt downgrade by Fitch. And if you look back, it seems like not that long ago, but 12 years, that's a decent amount of time. That's when the S&P was downgraded. S&P downgraded the U.S. debt in the same manner from AAA down one notch. And since then, investors have made a lot of warnings and a lot of hand-wringing about the U.S. debt. And it's mainly not mattered, mainly because the treasury market is the most liquid market in the world. And the U.S. dollar is the reserve currency. And so treasuries have always been pristine collateral. And pristine collateral is very important to the financial system. Right, because you can you can own treasuries, you can pledge them as collateral for a lot of different assets in the in in the global economy, and people are going to take that as collateral. Now, back when the SP downgraded our debt, stocks came unsettled for a few months. Interestingly, interest rates fell. But then we resumed the bull market in both bonds and equities soon after. Now, if you look back in history of our debt, the Congressional Budget Office, which is supposed to be very bipartisan, and it projects going forward how debt is going to evolve. And if you look at those, that history, you will see that they haven't been very good at prognosticating these things. 27, sorry, 2007, it said that the public debt would fall to about 22% of gross domestic product in a decade. Obviously, that did not happen. In 2011, it was said to reach 76% by this fiscal year. Well, it's going to be over 100%. Now, right now, they said net interest will reach $745 billion in fiscal year 2024. Well, it's probably going to be more than that. Even if it is that, it's going to be three-quarters of all discretionary spending, excluding defense. Now, the interesting little change in the reaction so far since this downgrade is that actually yields did rise. Now, maybe that's because both S&P and Fitch don't have it as AAA, so... Maybe certain funds can't own anything but AAA. And remember, most entities that have AAA ratings, their debt to, their debt to equity ratio is more like 30%. Countries that have that are around their debt to equity, debt to GDP ratio is also around 30%. So we're over 100%. So it makes sense that we should be downgraded. Now, the we borrow no currency, so a default nominally is not happening, right? We control the printing press where we will print dollars versus actually defaulting on our debt. Anyone who believes otherwise has never read history. 
Now, will we inflate away our debt? Probably. That's the path they've always taken. But what will the ramifications be on inflation, on the dollar? And if there are major problems financially in the health realm, think of another pandemic, maybe militarily, will we be able to just whip out the checkbook? We shall see. So this is definitely heading in a direction that is not good. That the powers that be, the Fed and the Treasury mainly, are going to try to manage. But it's going to be a challenge over the next decade or two to inflate away the debt. And there's a lot of ramifications, both politically and economically, that you will see. But it's not going to happen overnight. It will come in stages. Now we're heading into our final break. I'm ready to take your questions live at 888-99-CHART. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley are ready to take on your finance and investment questions. So don't forget to call InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART. Good afternoon, Steve and Justin. Steve Ogier calling in from Concord, New Hampshire. Uh, I was hoping we might be able to take a look at ticker symbol ALB. I believe it's pronounced Albemarle. Looks like it has roughly a 6 PE. And earnings per share is pretty high, looks like around 31. So I'm trying to find a reason why I shouldn't buy more of this. I just put about a half a position in at $195 a share-ish. But I want to see if there's anything that I'm missing on the stock for why I shouldn't, you know, put maybe a full position in. I was hoping you guys might be able to take a look at it for me. Thanks. I think it's the, the number one thing to point to is the chart. It's terrible. Uh, it's clearly in a downtrend, making a series of lower highs and lower lows, and it's below all the major moving averages. This is absolutely, definitely a bearish chart. There's nothing getting me excited about it. So that's number one. Number two, uh, I believe I talked about this last week, but Albemarle is the world's largest lithium producer. And while the demand for lithium is increasing because of EVs and battery demand, it's lithium at the end of the day is pretty abundant and it's not that easy to get it out of the ground. Lithium is, you know, a form of salt basically. And there's lithium all over the world. So I think that limits huge upside for lithium prices. And on top of that, I think you have huge technological risk here because while lithium-ion batteries are much better than their predecessors, they're always trying to find a new type of battery, right? Solid-state batteries are one example. And whether or not they actually get there We'll see. But it's certainly a risk to lithium prices if they come up with some better battery technology. So all those reasons, that, and you're, you're citing a 6PE. Well, remember, most commodity producers trade at a very low PE. 
They don't trade on market P's because they're price takers, meaning they get what the price uh, in the market gives them. They don't have control over that. They can't just say, oh, one day I'm going to charge 10% more for my products because the buyers will almost completely disappear. And that's why price takers tend to trade at lower multiples. And so you add all that up, and I see far more reasons to sell the stock than to buy the stock. So I'm absolutely passing on ALB Albemarle. All right, lastly, let's touch on AI. And I thought this was a, a great practice uh, by, this is from The Economist. And what they did is they created a generative AI index. And what they did is they ranked S&P 500 companies based on a few things. Issues, patent, pat, issues, issued patents, sorry. Issued patents that mention AI, venture capital activity targeting AI, meaning investing in AI firms, acquiring AI firms, job listing citing AI, and mentions of AI in earnings calls. And as you would expect, technology firms led by a large margin. But close second, eh, somewhat close second, would be banks, then retail, then aerospace and defense, car makers, healthcare products, media, diversified financials, insurance, food, and healthcare services. So that was interesting uh, ranking there from kind of top to bottom. And in 2023, some 25% of venture deals by S&P 500 firms involved AI startups. That's up from 19% in 2021. And about half of the firms mentioned AI in earnings calls since 2021. Now, what this is basically telling you, though, is that it's not a shock that tech firms are focusing on it, but there are actually a lot of firms, especially in places like insurance, uh, in banking, in industrials like uh, uh, Boeing, for example, is talking about AI. Uh, there are uh, all, companies all different up and down the, the different sectors of the S&P that are putting money behind this. Now, does this mean that you go out and buy all of them? No, but clearly they're focusing on it and it's not just the tech companies that are going to benefit from the AI push, all right? I'm Justin Klein, this completes another Invest Talk program. Steve and I thank you for listening and we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review on iTunes as well. And hit the follow button on the Invest Talk social platforms like Instagram and YouTube. Independent thinking, shared success. This Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461.
Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening. And your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART.